0: Well, good morning. Uh, This morning we are uh, continuing on in our sermon series of the spirit of the early church, or the spirit of the church, uh, study through Acts. So last summer we went through the first 15 chapters of Acts, and this summer we've been uh, slowly working our way through the second part. Uh, And today, as Bob read, uh, we'll be in Acts uh, 17. But as we get ready to jump into that, uh, would you join me for a word of prayer? Loving God, uh, we are uh, grateful for the chance to to be together, um, both here in person and on Zoom. Uh, Thank you for the gift of technology, and thank you for the gift of your spirit um, that is here present among us, both in the sanctuary and for those of us in our homes and on Zoom. Thank you for this great mystery that um, we are together, um, that we're worshiping together as as one body, uh, regardless of the barriers that stand in the way. God, again, we we recognize your spirit here among us, and as we turn to the scriptures now, we we ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There are many reasons why it might feel like the world has been turned upside down, both collectively and individually. Uh, I think this past year is chock full of uh, likely perpetrators for why it can feel like our world Could be turned upside down right Uh, somewhere along the way over the last year i I dubbed three of the biggest ones the unholy trinity right so we have uh, the first one being covid Uh, we've talked a lot about covid we've all experienced it we don't need to talk about how it's turned our world upside down anymore right all that to say if you're still feeling like that that's okay (laughs) Uh, this was a collective trauma and we're still all processing it together in some way first perpetrator second perpetrator Racism, uh, particularly of like the systemic sort of way, and I think this has affected two different groups in different ways. Uh, the first group being white folk like me, right? Um, for for some of us, as we've come face to face with like these stories in the the headlines, uh, sometimes it felt like week after week after week, we were confronted with the reality that like there is like injustice baked into the system in some way, and. This might have upended some sort of worldview or understanding of how the world worked, and this could be like, really, really confusing for us, turning our world upside down. Or perhaps we're re-confronting it in another way, having been on this journey of anti-racism for a while, and we're just pulling at the thread, asking more and more questions, discovering more and more ways that the system is stacked against our sisters and brothers of color. But I think there's another way that this turns the world upside down, and that is for our sisters and brothers of color because they have to deal with these, these stories being in the newspaper, these images being on the internet, and it's a perpetual reminder that our world may not value their lives. Now, I don't know that feeling, but as I try to step into that story with empathy, I can only imagine that that continues to turn your world upside down. The third perpetrator of the unholy trinity that's turned our world upside down is ugly, divisive, partisan politics, to the point where, like, Red and blue can't work together for any hint of purple to be detected by their base, by their supporters, with the threat of losing their seat, and we can't get things passed for the common good, and that's enough political commentary from me. The unholy trinity collectively upturn- or turning our world upside down. But we have individual ways that our world has been turned upside down too, right? Uh, This could be perhaps a a job transition Um, and recognizing that there's all sorts of newness with a job transition, Um, new patterns, new rhythms, new uh, financial stability of sorts, right? And all of this newness, whether good or bad, can feel like it's turning our world upside down. Or perhaps it's uh, some sort of mental health or emotional health crisis or perhaps even a spiritual crisis where we have this inner working within our world and something comes along somewhere and disrupts that and now we're left scrambling trying to put our understanding of how the world works and how we as an individual work back together. There are these things that come and can turn our world upside down, and it takes this like, neatly constructed understanding of how we function and how the world around us functions, and it turns its its head, and we're left to pick up the pieces, trying to put things back together, asking all sorts of new questions of how do we function and how does the world around us function. There's many reasons for it to feel like the world has been turned upside down, but how many times have we attributed that to Jesus? <laughs> I think this is a really fascinating question because this is the question that we see, or this, is the, this seems to be the case of what's happening in Acts chapter 17. So in Acts chapter 17, we're told at the beginning of it that Paul and Silas, our two main characters here, head into a new city by the name of Thessalonica. Now, as they come into the city of Thessalonica, Paul does what is like his normal custom and practice in a new city. He heads into the synagogue, like the center of Jewish life and faith and culture, And he begins to argue the scriptures with them. Now, a side note on Paul that's important to understand in this story. Paul is like wicked, wicked smart. (laughs) Paul understands every sort of worldview around him, Jewish or non-Jewish. And he's one of those like really smart people that can argue from your worldview and tell you why you're wrong, right? Um, So Paul is entrenched in all of these worldviews. He understands how people think and how they function and their values and priorities, and especially those within his own Jewish people. Now, because he's a good first century Jew, like he is entrenched in the scriptures, like he knows them forward and back. Uh, Did anybody do like Bible quizzing? Uh, Okay, I didn't, but I know the types from school. And if you were a state champion, I guarantee Paul knows the Bible better than you. (laughs) Paul was entrenched in the scriptures so much so that they pulsated through his veins, much like his very blood, like the scriptures read him as he read them. Which makes this moment on the Damascus Road all the more compelling because Paul was entrenched in these scriptures and he has this moment with Jesus where now he's confronted face to face with the Messiah in person. And now he has to re understand all of the scriptures as pointing to Jesus. And now Jesus acts as like this filter through this blood that's pumping and now he's reinterpreting, re understanding these scriptures. So that now when he goes into synagogue from city to city, this is what he's doing publicly. He's bringing his fellow Jews along saying, listen, this is how we understood the scriptures, but now through Jesus, this is what it means and this is what it's pointing to. And so he sits down in the synagogue and argues with them. Another side note, uh, arguing for us good Midwesterners is something very uncomfortable, right? We don't like conflict. We'll cause more conflict to avoid conflict, right? This is a very Jewish practice. Like This is how they got to their interpretation. And actually, like in the arguing was the interpretation, the wrestling with the scriptures. So, Paul is not being particularly hostile here. So, Paul's in the synagogue arguing with the scriptures, pointing all of his fellow Jews to Jesus as the fulfillment of the scriptures. And we're told that some are persuaded. Some believe, some join in on the way of Jesus. But maybe not surprisingly, some are not. And Luke tells us some became jealous. Now, I don't know about you, but in my own life, I recognize that if jealousy goes unchecked, it can quickly turn to bitterness. And if that bitterness goes unchecked, it can quickly turn into rage. And if that rage is unchecked, it can lead to destructive and harmful behaviors. And that's exactly what we see happening in this story This jealousy goes unchecked, turns into bitterness, which goes unchecked, that turns into rage, which goes unchecked, and now leads to them trying to find Paul and Silas to bring them in front of the city authorities. And they can't find them, so they turn to the next best thing, their co-conspirators, their co-laborers, the people that have been associating with them and helping them in their mission. So in Acts 17, verse 6, Luke tells us, when they could not find them, they dragged could not find them, meaning Paul and Silas. They dragged Jason and some believers before the city authorities, shouting, "These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus." Now, this is the accusation that uh, those that were jealous give to Paul and Silas and their co-conspirators. They're rabble-rousers, right? (laughs) They're disturbers of the peace. They're doing things that are anti-to-the-empire and anti-patriotic, right? The, The accusation here is essentially that they have become insurrectionists of sorts, right? Like we have this neatly compacted, very delicate house of cards understanding of the world and they've come and they've just shaken things up and they're turning the world upside down. But I think this leads to an important question. Is that a fair accusation? (laughs) Is that what the disciples are doing? Well, As we we track the, the, the movement and the pattern of the disciples throughout the book of Acts, we see that central to their message is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that they've been hoping for, that they've been praying for, that they've been longing for, the one who will bring redemption and restoration and liberation and freedom for them. But more than just the Messiah, Jesus is also Lord. Jesus is their teacher, their leader, their their king, their Caesar, emperor, or in our common terms, their president of sorts, right? And they follow him as Jesus is leading them to a new reality, a new world breaking into the old. Which again asks this question of like, well, what does this new reality, this new world breaking into the old look like? Now we have to assume that they're like uh, playing Jesus' best hits here, right? Like the A side of the cassette tape, right? Certain ages will get that, right? Uh, the best hits of Jesus, which we can assume are things like uh, those who are uh, welcomed into the, the kingdom of God, who the kingdom of God is available for. When Jesus talks about this, this new reality, he says that those within this new reality in this new world, those that are blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who mourn the meek, those who hunger and thirst for things like righteousness and justice, uh, the merciful, those who are pure in heart, uh, the, the peacemakers and those who are persecuted for pursuing things like righteousness and justice. Within this new reality of Jesus, this new world of Jesus, we're told that like, our, our heart matters as much, if not more, than our actions. Like Our internal world matters as much, if not more, than our external actions. Within this new reality, this new world of Jesus, we're told that we value people, and we have a concern for those that are most vulnerable in our society, and that we treat them, surprisingly, as people and not property that can easily be disposed of. Within this new reality and this new world, we're told that our words have power, and that there is this intimate connection between what we say and what we do, Within this new reality and this new world, we're told that we can actually step into the cycles of violence that seemingly flow endlessly and break these cycles of violence and actually in turn love our enemies. And this is just the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Or maybe perhaps more succinctly, we could summarize this new reality, this new world of Jesus from Luke chapter 4, when he stands up in the synagogue and reads from the scroll of Isaiah and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll, sits down, and says, oh, by the way, that's taken place in me right here before you. So again, we come back to this question. Is this a fair accusation? Are the disciples, as they're following Jesus, are they turning the world upside down? I think as we hear what they were probably proclaiming, I think there is an overwhelming answer of yes. <laughs> See, the reason why Jesus and the followers of Jesus were turning the world upside down is that Jesus recognizes that he has to turn the world upside down so that we can experience it right side up. Because all throughout the teachings of Jesus, all throughout the life of Jesus, is this common thread of this Hebrew word, shalom. Shalom is this word that's, that's uh, alluded to all throughout the, our Old Testament, and is found in the very, and the image of it is found in the very beginning of Genesis one with creation. It's a, it's a world where there is, like wholeness, where there is like an intimate interconnectedness of all of creation, where there is overwhelming goodness. But this Shalom, somewhere along the way, was distorted. And this world that was once upside down has now been turned upside down. And so Jesus steps into this world bringing a message of shalom so that we can experience the world turned upside down. This turning the world upside down is necessary because the world that we experience right now is upside down. The status quo of the world that we experience right now is upside down. And this is how we know that the status quo is upside down because when we as followers of Jesus pursue things like peace and justice and when we recognize that truth and justice must come before true peace can be experienced, we're described as disturbers of the peace. (laughs) When we as followers of Jesus seek to include those who have been excluded rather because of the color of their skin, because of their socioeconomic status, their education level, their gender, their sexuality, their nationality, We are called (laughs) rabble-rousers. And when we proclaim another king other than Caesar or whatever president is in the Oval Office, we are labeled anti-empire and labeled as dangerous insurrectionists. (laughs) But in reality, we recognize that the world began right-side-up, experienced distorted shalom, and is upside-down currently. And those that pursue the status quo are actually the (laughs) rabble-rousers, the disturbers of the peace, And those that are anti kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world, but the kingdom of God, which Jesus seems utterly convinced is breaking into the old order. The status quo is upside down, not right side up. And Jesus says, and Jesus comes and turns the world upside down so that we can experience it right side up. Now, all of this begs the question of us, and which I I hope is a, a bit of an obvious question for us, and that is, as we are following Jesus together? Are we still turning the world upside down? <laughs> like we together collectively, like the witness of our church, does it still point to this reality? Does the very uh, existence of our community point to this new reality breaking into the old? Does our very existence uh, threaten those in power? <laughs> Does our very existence and do our very practices shake the foundation of the status quo? As I've sat with those questions this week, uh, I came to the conclusion that um, I, unlike Jason, have never been dragged out of the parsonage before the city authorities. Not yet, anyways. And yet I think the answer to these questions is yes. (laughs) Yes. I think we as a collective community following Jesus are still turning the world upside down. And here's some of the reasons why. Because we as a congregation have been located right here on 3rd Street Southeast for almost 200 years now. For almost 200 years, we have called this part of the city our home, a part of the city that has been more than just ignored and neglected by the city, but sometimes taken advantage of for the benefit of others and other parts of the city. And yet we have chosen to stay here and say, we will love this neighborhood well, and we will love our neighbors well and partner with them to bring the shalom of Jesus, this world turned right side up, right here on earth as it is in heaven. I think another way that we see us turning the world upside down is by us partnering with, in my totally unbiased opinion, one of the best nonprofits in town in the Lighthouse, whose very mission says uh, to walk alongside the youth of our neighborhood and un- help them assist them in unpacking their God given giftedness and potential for impacting the world around them. Which means that we are partnering with an organization that. Um, Like, is empowering students and youth to be neighborhood changers, city changers, world changers. I think another way that we see us turning the world upside down is, like, our willingness to confront the ills in the world around us. Um, To confront them, not to sweep them under the rug, but to, like, pull them out and talk about them, and talk about sometimes our own complicity in them. And to talk about how Jesus might be leading us forward into a better, more beautiful, more shalom-filled, right-side-up world. And I think one more way that we see us turning the world upside down is there's a lot of us in this room, and potentially on Zoom too, that like, just wouldn't jive in a lot of other faith communities. Um, maybe we ask the wrong questions, right? Maybe uh, we just don't fit in because of our past, because of our current theology, the things that we think or the ways that we follow Jesus, we've been excluded and are just feeling disenfranchised with the church. And yet we've been able to find a home here. And we have been able to, to find community, find belonging, to find a, a place where we can follow Jesus with all that we have so that we can see that shalom, that right side world, come breaking into this old upside down world. Um, certainly we as a a congregation are are not perfect. But I think in our own imperfection, we're pursuing the the perfect expression of love that we see Jesus talking about in Matthew chapter 5 when he says that that God in heaven uh, pours out rain on the just and the unjust. It's an indiscriminate love. And I think in our own imperfection, we're pursuing that perfect love um, to the best of our abilities. And in the process, we are quietly... Quietly, because we're Mennonites. Quietly turning the world upside down. Um, Jesus comes to turn the world upside, uh, upside down so that we can experience it right side up. And we ask ourselves this question of, are we still turning the world upside down? And I think this is the question ever before us. Because I think this is the question that points to what faithfulness to Jesus, the way of Jesus, and to the kingdom of God looks like. And We pray, may it be so among us. Amen.